Good morning. My illustrious predecessors in the faith, my brothers, my mentors, St. Francis of Assisi and St. Francis de Sales, have been explaining to you the ministry of peacemaking. And they've explained it in terms of living a nuptial life, a life that gives to our adversaries the gift of ourselves, and then we enter into a space of reciprocity, of give and take, and then the third moment of peacemaking is fruitfulness. And I want to speak to you this morning on the subject of fruitfulness. In case you do not realize, I am St. Francis of Epworth, whom you know as Mr. John Wesley. I grew up in the long 18th century in England, in the Church of England. I want to explain to you what a nuptial life is using some of my own life experience of following Jesus through a very tumultuous century. I ministered at a time in England where there was a mindset, not really a philosophy, but a climate of opinion known as deism. It was all the rage. Deism essentially was a misapplication of Newtonian physics into a worldview, into a metaphysic, kind of an overarching explanation of all reality. To put it crassly, a deist saw the world as a finely tuned clock. God was the clockmaker. He made the clock. He wound up the clock. And then he walked away from the clock. And the clock ticked and talked, ticked and talked. This way of viewing the world was not only believed in the 18th century, it was considered what was believable. All right-thinking people thought this way, or so it was assumed. And because of that, there was a certain hardwired, inevitable despair in the land. It was Gafton's box. All of reality could be given a numerical figure. Everything could be quantified in this worldview. But by the end of the 18th century, England was going under, undergoing a revival of Christian faith. The end of the slave trade was only a generation away. And a few years later, the reformation of manners, that as children were pulled out of the factories and put into schools, and the like. And Jeremiah's prophecy that was just read was beginning to be fulfilled. The streets of Jerusalem are no longer desolate, for there shall be heard again there the voice of mirth and the voice of the bridegroom and the voice of the bride and the voices of those who sing as they bring thank offerings. This was now London. So what transpired? How did a century that began so spiritually barren become so fruitful? Historians love to credit my ministry to this turnaround, and I confess that I hope we played our part in the transformation of society. But the truth is that there were many key people working against this climate of opinion. First, I must mention my sometime adversary, but great brother in Christ, Bishop Joseph Butler, the Bishop of Bristol. 
We disagreed on several matters, mostly around ecclesiology, but we had a common faith and a common mind about deism. He wrote the most impressive apologetic for Orthodox Christianity, and he tackled deism intellectually. His formidable intellect was like an ax at the root of the premises of deism. Second, there was this wonderful German composer who would come to London, spend a week, then he'd come back and spend a month, and eventually he lived in London for three or four years and composed some of his greatest symphonies, and he always played to a packed house, George Handel. Deism had no rational explanation for this kind of ex nihilo genius of beauty that everyone heard every time he played his music. There was no explanation for it in deism, for this kind of phenomena. And just as Bishop Butler attacked the intellectual climate created by deism, Handel attacked the aesthetic, the emotional environment created by deism. And then last of all, a subject that you're familiar with, there was the transformation of the urban poor masses. And we did have a hand in that. We were challenging deism interpersonally. We were challenging deism socially. Where we were most fruitful as a movement was turning self-loathing, disconnected, poor people into a network of spiritual families where they could experience the love of God through human love. The path of peace always leads to this goal, people being restored in the image of God through the love of God. So together, Bishop Butler, George Handel, and myself, we took England back from the clutches of deism. Bishop Butler recovered the head, Handel recovered the heart, and we recovered the hands of God's people in 18th century England. So what was the secret of our success? Well, despite the fact that success is not a proper theological concept, <laughs> I think the secret is found in explicating this passage in John chapter 4. You know the story well. Let's pick it up where my brother's my brother St. Francis is left off. Let's pick it up with the point where the woman recognizes that Jesus very well may be the Messiah. She hurries back to the village to tell her friends. The disciples have come back after going to a village to get a meal, so they've been away for many hours. So what we have in John 4 is a telescoping of probably a very long conversation. They are a bit surprised, maybe offended, that he has spent that whole time with that woman. And they come upon Jesus, and they say to him, we want you to eat. We have food for you. And he tells them somewhat cryptically, like he did the woman about living water. He says, I have food you don't know of. The woman at the well was his food. 
He was doing the mission of the father, which was retrieving one of his lost children, bringing her back into his body. This was his food. This is what fed Jesus. He said, I have food you don't know of. And Jesus is urging his disciples to be consumed and to consume the work of God, the mission of God. Why? I think quite simply it's because God's mission is as determined and as inevitable as God's purposes. God's purpose to redeem and to heal and to restore the world that he created and the stewards of that world first is inevitable. See, the Gospels are essentially, this is my theology in a nutshell, are creation narratives in reverse. You know, the first creation narrative, God makes the world and all the things in the world. And on the sixth day, at the climax of his creation, he creates man and woman in his image. Right? Your theology students, shake your head. Right? You got that. But in the Gospels, it's all reversed. The, the focus now is on the sixth day. God is recreating man and woman in his image so that they can be stewards when there's a new creation and a new earth and not screw it up again. Amen? That's where it's going. And we continue this ministry of the sixth day, participating, extending the gospels of Jesus through the power of the Holy Spirit, restoring the image of God in his children so that they can be stewards of his good earth. That's my food. That's what feeds me. That's what I was consumed with. This is what... <clears throat> Jesus is saying to his disciples, you cannot stop the mission of God. This is going to happen. But you can miss the harvest. You can miss it. Notice what Jesus says. Do not say there are yet four months and then comes the harvest. Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes and see that the fields are white for harvest. Now, who is Jesus referring to here? Most of the time you hear this verse preached upon, it's usually abstracted from this context. I'm asking you not to do that. Pay attention to what we've been listening to the last two days. Who is Jesus referring to? I think Jesus is explaining to his disciples who are still very dense about what he's been doing all day with this woman. He's explaining to them through another image that he is harvesting what others have sown. He is harvesting Samaritans, these most hated heretics of his day. And the woman at the well is the first fruits of what is going to be an extraordinary harvest. Remember the context? Jesus has been treated either with hostility or he's simply been ignored up to this point. In John chapter 2, Jesus explains to everybody, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll rebuild it again. Displacing the temple and, and earning the ire of the temple authorities. The next chapter, he's back in Galilee. His first miracle is a miracle of changing the water into wine at a wedding in Cana of Galilee. And even his mother doesn't understand that she must now become his disciple. 
It's not enough just to be your mother. It is not until John 4, Jesus spending a day's conversation with a heretic that we see someone who's actually receptive to him. Surprise, surprise. The most receptive person to his message, to his mission, was the one no one would have expected to be so. And the mission of God always follows this path of unlikely receptivity. How do you know where to join God in his mission? How do we know where to join in the harvest, liturgically precise Jerusalem, evangelically pure Galilee, or heretical Samaria? Samaria is that place of checkered history and strained relationships. Samaria is that place of doctrinal deviance and moral muddledness. But Samaria often is also the place of receptivity because they know they don't have it right. God's mission, like water, goes to the place of least resistance. And this is the great irony of the Christian mission. It's something I saw over and over again in the 18th century. The most unsuspecting people are often the most receptive people. See, for me, the most receptive people were not the educated of Oxford. Those were my people. The most receptive people were not the ruling colonials of Georgia. I went to work for them. They were not receptive. No. The receptive people were the underclass the commoners, the ones that George Whitfield told me quit being a prig and go out and preach to them in the open air. <laughs> the miners, the weavers, the butchers, the bakers, the candlestick makers. Those are the ones that responded to my message of God's love for them. These were the ones that I preached to in the fields of Bristol, and where I had my first early exchanges with Bishop Joseph Butler. These are the ones, these are the people I gathered into groups we call class meetings and bands, and you know all of that. And who led these groups? Another surprise about receptivity. Who were the most effective group leaders in my movement? Who were the most effective evangelists in my movement in these groups where we regathering and re-knitting these social relationships? You know the answer to this question. I know you. <laughs> Women. <laughs> Up to three quarters of my, my leaders in these groups were women. And before long, I see, saw they were not only good at leading groups and managing the groups like they would their own household, but they were actually really good at teaching, not unlike my mother. 
they were good at exhorting, and I thought, you know, there's not much of a difference between teaching, exhorting, and preaching. Maybe I ought to let them do that too. What was the secret of my ministry? I think my secret <clears throat> is that we learned to follow the mission of God wherever it led us. That was our secret. My ministry was really a series of discarded solutions. That didn't work in Oxford. That didn't work in Georgia. I, I need to be open to what does work. In other words, my success was a matter of learning from my failures. And we aligned our work over time, and we aligned our methods to what we saw the Holy Spirit doing in the 18th century. Now I have a question for you. To whom was Jesus referring in John chapter 4 when he said to his disciples, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you did not labor. Others have labored and you have entered into their labor. Keep this verse in context. Who is he talking to? Who is he referring to? Well, let me help you. Could only have been one of two people in this context, given what is going on all around him. He is saying to them, you are about to enter into someone else's labor. I have been entering into somebody else's labor. This is how the kingdom of God works. Some sow, some reap. Some get to do both, some don't. But all of us are entering into somebody else's labor. The woman who was at the well is about to tell the people, the townspeople, that the man who told him everything she ever did, could this man be the Messiah? In other words, this is a prophetic word. Jesus is saying to the disciples, this woman is about to go in Samaria, and you are going to be the first beneficiaries of her sowing. And this is, of course, what happens. The town people come out, and many of them believe. Or Acts chapter 8, a few years later, Philip and Peter, they go and they preach the gospel there. And there's receptivity because this woman and Jesus have sown in Samaria. But other people participate in the harvest. So Jesus could be speaking prophetically or he could be speaking historically. Remember the prophets of Israel, how they prophesied to the people of Samaria, the people of the northern kingdom who were becoming syncretistic, like Hosea, that great prophet of Samaria, when he said to the people, in that day, declares the Lord, you will call me my husband, and no longer will you call me my Baal, for I will remove the names of the Baals from your mouth, and they shall be remembered by name no more, and I will betroth you. And Jesus has entered into this labor, the labor of Hosea and all the pain that Hosea went through with an unfaithful wife. God using his life and his soul and his ministry as an object lesson for the people of God. And Jesus now is entering into that labor. And he's saying, in effect, I am he. I am your husband. I'm harvesting what Hosea sowed years and years ago. You don't have to decide between these prophetic references or historical references. That's now how time works in the kingdom of God. It's not strictly linear. 
It's both. And this is what we're caught up in. We're caught up in this grand tapestry of redemption where we are both, you know, prophetic ministries of what went before us and we are also historical figures of an ongoing ministry and people are going to harvest what we have sown. This is how the kingdom of God works. God's mission will not be arrested. It will not be stopped. God will woo his bride and all of us are going to be surprised who will be at the marriage supper of the Lamb. Amen? Amen. You cannot stop it. You cannot stop God's mission any more than you can stop the ocean. But you can miss the harvest. So this was the second principle of our supposed success. You cannot stop God's mission. You can miss the harvest if you choose not to listen. We miss the harvest whenever we don't mind this important biblical truth that we are always entering into somebody else's labor. Of course, you Wesleyans call this prevenient grace. It's God's overabundant generosity that he just gives to everybody. And it's his way of wooing people to him. This is what happened. Throughout the mission of the early church, as they went from Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, remember Samaria, to the ends of the earth. In God's economy, you and I are always entering into somebody else's labor. And somebody will come after us and they will enter into our labor. And this is how Methodism turned England from a culture of deistic pessimism into a Holy Spirit playful optimism by the end of the 18th century. Though my ministry saw much fruit, because peacemaking always issues forth in fruitfulness. Though it saw much fruit, I also sowed where others later reaped. And maybe this is the greatest proof of a peacemaker's life. Others harvest where you have sown. I keep telling you about this Anglican rector that we're trying to help. My brothers Francis, the CC Francis de Sales, myself, and he has much to learn, and that's why we're all helping him and gathering around him and encouraging him. He was once told this story not long ago by the current Bishop of London, Richard Chartres. There was a Pentecostal Anglican church in Knightsbridge, which was filling up with young people, but it was liturgically Spartan. It was hardly recognizable Anglican, but it was filling up, and young people were getting converted by the hundreds but it was becoming a source of embarrassment by the hierarchy. And while this was happening, and they were reaching out to him to be included more into the diocese, because though they were on the margins, they were faithful churchmen, these leaders, Richard Chartres is reading through the journals of his predecessor. And while this is happening, he happens upon the, journal, the journals of Bishop Lau, the Bishop of London, in the mid-18th century, when John Wesley's ministering in London. Bishop Lauth was the greatest Hebraist of that century. He was a European intellectual. He would lecture on the European university tours of that day. 
Wesley came to him a number of times and said, would you ordain my preachers? I want a closer connection to the Church of England. And Bishop Louth kept stiff-arming him. No, no, no. And he said, I looked at what was happening at HTB, and I decided I was not going to be the Bishop Louth of the 20th century. Yeah, that's worth a clap. That's fruitfulness. That's someone harvesting, reaping where someone else is sown. And of course, that church has not only raised up a great evangelistic movement that has blessed the whole church, it's even raised up its own Archbishop of Canterbury. In other words, we are not good judges of our fruitfulness. What some person looks at as a failure given enough time and a change of perspective, can be seen as a great success. Don't you worry about judging your ministry. Let God do it. I want to end where I began, or where St. Francis of Assisi began on Tuesday, and that is that the meaning of a life cannot be understood within the measure of its own duration here on earth. This is especially true for peacemakers. We sow seeds that future generations will harvest. Be a peacemaker. Give life to your adversary. And see them become a friend. And enjoy the blessing of your father who says, you are my son and daughter. For this is what I call peacemakers. Be a peacemaker and be fruitful and have many sons and daughters in God, just as you are to me. Amen.